Acts 3, starting in verse 9. It says, When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. If you missed last week, a guy who's 40 years old, crippled from birth, is healed in a moment. And now he's jumping, and everyone realizes God is at work. So let's continue in verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? This shouldn't be a shock. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. This is a great line, verse 15. You killed the author of life. (laughs) How's that for a tagline? What are you guilty of? I just killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. It's by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now he's going to explain it in a minute, but you have to, there's throngs of people who've seen a mighty work happen and all Peter wants to do is say, guys, you've got to be kidding me if you think this is us. It's Peter and John who are Jesus' followers. You've got to be kidding me. This can't be us. And then he's going to explain who did this. Verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who had spoken, who have foretold these days, and, as, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, last week we saw the details, if you were here, of how a man was stuck on the outside. He is, 
He's a beggar and he's brought to the gate. He can't even get there himself. The gate is the entry to the most holy place on earth for the followers of God, the temple area. But we know that because there is a stigma about the guy, because he's physically deformed, people think there must be something wrong within. So he's an outsider and he has not been on the inside to worship with the rest of the people. He's stuck on the outside. He cannot make a living. He must beg. But in a moment, Peter and John going to their regular time of prayer, it was the rhythm of the Jesus followers daily to go and pray with the people of God and pray that people would see who Jesus is. They see the man and Peter, stirred by the Holy Spirit, says, silver or gold, I do not have. But look at me. What I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he reaches his hand and he pulls him up and he runs, the, the, the text says. The man jumps and runs and worships God all throughout the temple area. And it reminds me, uh, 1999 was the first time I went to, to Africa. And it was to Nigeria, the northern part of Nigeria, a region called Maiduguri, multiple millions of people. And I was going there to help a friend who's an evangelist. And he invited me to come. And he's going to be sharing the gospel in a big soccer stadium. And my degree, you need to know, is mostly Muslim. As a matter of fact, right now there's a lot of talk about ISIS and Boko Haram, which is connected to that. It's terrorist organizations. They're centered out of my degree in Nigeria. Very anti-Christian. But John had faith and the church invited him to come. And so I went just to help and be a part of it. So we're in this huge area, uh, um, soccer stadium, and we're there for a week. And John is simply giving the Jesus story, similar to what we read. Peter is sharing about Jesus. And similar to this event, as John is sharing this good news and people are responding, every night people are getting miraculously healed. What we saw here is a miracle. But what are the points? Uh, what are the points of a miracle? What's the point of having a miracle in the first place? What we're going to see here in the text is it drives people somewhere. And if you're wondering, does God still do this type of thing today? I've seen it with my eyes. I love the key question. We're going to focus on it tonight. Peter says to the Jewish people, the people who believe in God, why does this surprise you? As a matter of fact, some of you the fact that I said I'm in Nigeria and people are getting healed, skepticism jumps to the surface. Some of you are saying, yeah, okay, well, maybe. I, I'm not sure if that kind of thing happens. Well, we saw it happen in increasing number. There were people who had blurry vision who suddenly could see. There were people who, who could barely walk and needed crutches, walk and run and jump, similar to the story. And no one is even praying for anyone. This is as Jesus is being explained People are coming towards the stage and saying, while you're talking about this Jesus, my, something happened in my body. There were people who had growths that people could see that were suddenly gone. So what started to happen as the week went on, at the end of the meeting, some of these people that were verified, like I knew him, he had a growth right here, but it was, it's gone and God has healed him. We, to encourage people, brought him up to the stage, and I was part of the team that just interviewed people to make sure it's legit, and brought him to the stage to just share and give praise to God for what he had done. And on the final night, 
I saw what happens when power is evident. And the final night, we're all on the stage, about 10 of us that have come in to do this. There are tens of thousands of people up in the stands, all on the soccer pitch. And we're about to go and people start running to the stage. We had to jump off the stage, run to the bus that was parked right behind it, and hightail it out there with a police escort because where, when power is at work, people want to be around it. And when you're in a desperate situation, you don't want to know what to do, and you encounter someone who seems to have a connection with God, you want to be around it. So in a similar way, I think, because Jesus had just died, and most people thought that it's over. The Jesus movement is dead, But Peter and John are talking about Jesus being alive. And now they can't help but say, wait, we know this man. And we know that he has been begging for decades. What has happened? What does a miracle do? I think for us, as we read the book of Acts, we're going to see miracle after miracle after miracle. In 28 chapters, there are 30 plus miracles that are recorded in Acts. So, I want to be sensitive because some of us have just been ingrained since the time we were little kids to believe that if I can't see it, I shouldn't believe it. And that if it's not scientifically proven in a laboratory, it can't be real. Acts and the study of Acts is going to jack you up because it's going to open up a different way of seeing the world. And if you believe that the, the universe was created by God, by default, you must believe that miracles exist. You must believe in the possibility. If you really believe that God made anything, then he who made nature is above nature. And at points in history, even today, but all throughout the history of time, God has chosen to step in and supersede where sickness leads to death or crippled legs lead to begging and death. And that's the end of the story. Jesus intersects it. God steps in and does what God alone can do. So Acts forces us who live in the West, who've been taught science and reason and logic to think about the assumptions we have been taught. And I think that the scriptures lead to the better way. But in Acts, miracles open a conversation about Jesus. That's what we need to see. When you look at Acts, miracles aren't there for miracles' sake. It's not there for sensationalism. It's not there even to make us feel better about ourselves. Acts shows miracles as pointers towards the risen Jesus. And that's exactly what we see. Now tonight, if we were listening, we read the gospel. But if you've been here for a while, in Acts 2, we get almost the same thing. In Acts 2, Peter explains after, oh, by the way, a miracle, like this Holy Spirit comes and people are speaking in languages that are not known, but are from God, And other people who live in these regions are hearing these people who don't know their language declare the praises of God somehow. Miracle. God does a work. And Peter needs to get up and explain it. So just because something, quote unquote, supernatural happens doesn't mean it's from God. And it doesn't mean that we understand the point. So someone needs to step up. And once again, Peter and John are there. And Peter explains the good news. And tonight, we're going to hit the good news. As a matter of fact, as we study Acts The sharing of the good news happens all the time. So here's what I want us to do. Because there is so much to be said about what God has done, you can't get it in one teaching. Every time we hit the gospel, what all I want us to do is think about another dimension of it, another lens. When I think about what it means to hear the gospel or good news, what do I think? A couple of weeks ago, we used a description. 
life in six words. God, our sins, paying everyone life. The gospel is about a God who knows our sins but paid for it in Jesus so that everyone who trusts him receives life. That was like one little description of it. Tonight, I want us to look at another dimension. There was a time when you had to watch television without HD. Some of you are, you are not old enough. You're like, what's, what's that? It's like the olden days, okay? Uh, matter of fact, TV, TV wasn't there one time. TV was black and white. But anyway, that's another story. There was a time. Did you remember when you first went from watching? Some of you don't have HD. Jesus bless you. But did you remember that first time when you, like, you saw a TV? Like, ah, who? And then you, someone flicked on HD, flat screen, whatever. And you're like, whoa. Like, same program, same actors, same thing. But suddenly it's clearer to you. And then there's 3D, right? How many of you have enjoyed a 3D movie or 3D TV? Okay, obviously you're not media people. But those of you who are more truth tellers, I, I'll, I will never forget. I will never forget uh, taking a Ugandan pastor who's staying at our house. His name's Robert. He's in his late 20s. He'd come to America for the first time. And so I said, I'm going to take him to the movies. Like, he'd never been to a movie theater. It's America, right? So what we did was uh, Avatar was in the theater. This is a few years back. I took him to see Avatar in 3D. <laughs> it, was, it was the, we sat in the top row. He's like, well, what do I do with the glasses? I'm like, just, just put them on. No big deal. <laughs> Have you seen Avatar? I had never seen it. I should have previewed it. But, but Robert is a short guy, but he jumped the first time something came out. He's like, ah! And we're in the background. I'm like, what? Is I, I had to watch the movie again because I kept watching him. And he's like, ah, 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 you know. I thought it was funny. But same movie, but what he was experiencing was in multiple dimensions. And I, I'm, it's kind of a cheesy way, but I want you to see that when I think about the good news, it doesn't have just one dimension. It's not flat. Uh, there's an HD. There's a clarity to it. There's a 3D. There's, there's more to it than we see at first. And so tonight, I want us to see it through another lens. I want us to see another aspect of it. So here's what we're going to do. What does the gospel speak to? Last time we just talked about what it is. God, who knows our sins, paid for it in Jesus so that everyone who trusts in him will receive life, gospel. But tonight, what does the gospel speak to? If you're a note taker, there are three things in, in, in Peter's explanation that are totally going to resonate with our world, with your life, and the people that are around you. And I want you to write them down and reflect on it this week. The first thing I want you to write down is that the gospel shows God's pursuit in our past. The gospel shows God's pursuit in our past. What does Peter do? Remember, most of us have a tough time with these explanations because we're not Jewish. And the people we're speaking to mostly are not Jewish. So he's a Jew sharing Jesus in Jewish language. What does that look like? What does he take him to? Look at verse 13. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of, and here's the key phrase, our fathers. What Peter wants them to know is that the story of God, like the story that they would read, the Torah, the, the, the Bible, is the story of God actively pursuing people. If you've read Genesis 12, it is God who pursues Abram and says to him, Abram, follow me. I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know, and I'm going to bless you. The God who spoke to their fathers 
who were centuries prior. God was pursuing a people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. What I want us to see is that he takes them back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and makes a connection to Jesus. The same God who spoke to them is the same God who's lifting up this Jesus. It's the same God who healed this man. That's why he says, why are you guys confused? We didn't do this. The God that you guys know is the one who did it. And the implication is the miracle points to the person. If Jesus is still healing people, and by the way, everyone in Jerusalem knew that Jesus died. Word went fast. Everyone knew that Jesus was crucified, but these guys claim Jesus is still doing work. In other words, if you see the evidence of Jesus in the real world, you may need to rethink who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a dead prophet. He's the one that God glorified. Now this little, he's glorified his servant Jesus is a tagline. If you're Jewish, he's pointing them back to Isaiah. Now we'll throw it on the screen for time. Isaiah is one of the prophets. He's one of the most important prophets that people would quote. He wrote probably more than any of the other prophets. And he's got these chapters, Isaiah 52 and 53. I invite you to read that this week. You read Isaiah 52 and 53, and you have to think of Jesus. When you look at the Gospels and read Isaiah 52 and 53, you're like, wow, that sounds the same. Well, this whole glorifying of the servant is, a, it's not an exact quote, but he's summarizing Isaiah 53. It's on the screen. It says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. So Isaiah 53 is speaking about a servant who's going to come, who's going to be violently killed, even though he's innocent. That's what we've read so far. But why? Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. I want you to see what's happening. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, is is speaking for God, saying, I'm going to send a a humble servant, does no wrong, and he's going to suffer violence. But what's going to happen? He's going to see his offspring and prolong his days. So he's going to come to death but he's going to see life. Verse 11, after he's suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My, and this is that phrase, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah is pointing ahead. So what does Peter do? He takes them back to their, foref- their forefathers, their heroes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He points them to Isaiah and says that Isaiah is simply telling us what you're seeing in front of you. So they've just seen a miracle, and, and, and Peter's the first to claim, don't look at us, look at Jesus. Verse 14, just look in your text if you would. You disowned, another reference to Isaiah 53, The holy and righteous one. He's speaking about Isaiah and that servant. And ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. And and that's a play on words. You killed the one who made life, which is impossible. But God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses. So verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know has been made strong. 
Now just jump to verse 17, and you see him say it again. Fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that the Messiah must suffer. So Peter's explanation of the gospel is that the good news is about God pursuing us in the past. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, the prophets, all of them, God was pursuing them, bringing them close and pointing ahead to the time where once for all, he would send someone to set everyone free. But in every generation, God had been speaking life and freedom. And he's appealing to these guys, saying, don't you see what God has done? Then jump down, if you would, to verse 22. He brings in another hero. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses God's speaking through Moses. Another one's going to come because everyone's following Moses. No, no, when I go, God's going to send another messenger, another prophet. You must listen to him. And Peter unequivocally says, that prophet is none other than Jesus. Let's recap. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, Isaiah, Moses. And then just jump down to verse 24. Indeed, beginning with Samuel. All the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. What Peter is saying is the evidence is right in front of you. Not only the miracle, but they have another miracle. There's no reason why these people should not believe that Jesus is doing these things. Because if you think about it for a second, the entire history of the people of God, of the people of Israel, is the history of God's miraculous work. Hundreds of thousands of people are dirt poor slaves in Egypt, subject to the Egyptian rulers, and God chooses to set them free. He sends plagues against their captors, the Egyptians, that destroy them, but the people of God are made safe. In a night, all of the firstborn, not the secondborn, the firstborn eldest, the the future rulers in Egyptian households all die. Not one of the firstborn in the people of Israel perish. God brings judgment against their oppressors, but he saves his people. If that's not enough, in a night, Egyptians give their money to the Israelites and they leave. If that's not enough, they hit a a, a big sea, the Red Sea, and God decides to part it. And they walk over in dry land and the Egyptians drown. And God rescues them in a day. Their story is a story of God's intervening work. God steps into nature and does what is not naturally and normally available. If that's not enough, they're hungry. So God sends manna. Manna means, what is it? They don't even know what it is. Shows up every morning. Wake up, you come out of your tent, breakfast. Wouldn't that be nice? You don't have to shop. It's just there. If they don't collect it by midday, it's gone. They're like, well, we don't want to go vegan. We want some meat, God. So, so what does God do? He drops birds from the sky and quail fall, and they're able to barbecue. God takes care of them. All that salty stuff, they want something to drink. They have no water. They're in the desert. God says, Moses, look at the rock. I'm going to send, well, how many of you have a, a rock or two or a big boulder in your, in your property or whatever? If you have a big rock, why don't you speak to the rock and say, water, come out. It doesn't work that way. Sprinkler system would help, but it doesn't work that way. But God brings water out of a rock. What am I saying? He's reminding them 
God has been pursuing people before us. God has been pursuing us. God is pursuing you. And you need to know tonight, yeah, quail and manna and water from a rock, that may not be your history, but let's just make it personal for a second. God is pursuing you. We need to be reminded, think about this. God brought you tonight to be reminded that before you were born, he brought you into a family in a particular way, whether it was good or not so good, because he wants you to know that he loves you. And even in the ups and downs, he's going to pursue you. God brings all sorts of people your way that that leads you to point you towards God. Some of you, it happened young. Some, you're still on the way. But you need to know, if you ever end up following Jesus, it did not happen in a moment. You can look back at your life and begin to see in the highs and lows, God is getting your attention and God is working on you. And just like Peter and John and this crowd of people, if we were honest, we can look at our lives and say, you know what? God has been after me and God is pursuing you and God wants to know you deeply. And that is the heart of the gospel. It's not that we're looking for God. John says it later. This is love. Not that you love God, but that God loved us. It's not like we're desperate to know God and God's like, oh man, great, I'll get to know you. It's that God is desperately in love with us, with you, with me. And so out of response to his love towards us, he pulls us in, he gets our attention. Tonight, my hope is that you'll see this dimension of the gospel, that all throughout your past, God has been working to bring you up to this day that you will respond because not only is it about yesterday, it's about today. Think about 2 Peter 3, 9. A few decades later, Peter, after saying this gospel presentation to his friends in Jerusalem, look at what he tells the church. He says, The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is what? Patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to Repentance. When Peter looks back on his own life, he's writing this in the end of his days. When he looks back at his life and the life of the people that he's encountered, he realizes God has been patient with us. So 700 years before they're there, he throws in a seed of the gospel through Isaiah. 700 years. Is it possible to believe that 700 years before you showed up, God had set things in motion to rescue you? I think absolutely that's the case. Sometimes we just don't see the connection points. But God loves us enough that he's been working for centuries to get us to a place. Now, some of you think, like, well, I'm not even, why would God do that? I have no clue. I have no idea why God would love us this much. But I've seen the evidence of his love. And as a parent, I got a little bit of a clue. When you're connected to someone in a deep way, like if you ever have a kid, you realize you get a, you get a taste, just a little glimmer of what God must think about us. He sees himself in us. He created us in his image. And we have, there's pieces of us that just resemble him. Pieces of us that don't. But he chooses to pursue us with love. And tonight you need to know that God has been pursuing in his past. But more than that, the gospel is God's call to life today. What, what does he say? In response to all that God has done, look at verse 17. Fellow Israelites... I know you acted in ignorance. He gets them off the hook for a second. He doesn't say, you Jews, 
even though Peter's a follower of Jesus, he still sees himself and his background as important. He's like, I've been brought up in the ways of God. Fellow Israelites, we're all in the same spot. Tonight, whether you were born Jewish or not, whether you were born with a church background or not, whether you understand the Bible or not, we're all in the same spot. We're created and made in the image of God, and we have messed things up. But he says, fellow Israelites, I know none of you are overtly trying to avoid Jesus. You acted in ignorance. You didn't realize who Jesus is. And isn't that our story? If we were to sit one-on-one, we'd probably talk about some point in your life and my life where Jesus wasn't attractive, where Jesus' work didn't make sense, where following Jesus wasn't like the greatest option. And somehow in the mystery, there's a point in all of our lives where we see Jesus more clearly. So he says, guys, I know you acted in ignorance. Then he says, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying the Messiah would suffer. Repent, verse 19, then and turn to God. What's the right response? Because the gospel is the story of God's pursuit of us in our past, the gospel is God's call to life today. And the way to life is repentance. So Peter, those of you who are teachers, you know that repetition is key. You repeat, you repeat. So what Peter does in one sentence, he uses two different words to say the same exact thing. Repent in Greek means to turn. So he says, turn and turn. Turn, and if, in case you don't know what that means, turn to God. Now here's the irony. He's saying it in the temple. They've already come to God. But he's like, no, no, no. You've come to the building. You've come to the place where God's presence dwells. Yeah, you, you, you've come to the spot, but you haven't really turned to God because you have chosen to ignore Jesus. And my friend, we all come from a different spiritual stream. We all come from a different background. But in order to experience the life of God, we must turn, and not just turn to anyone, we must turn to Jesus. So repentance is a beautiful thing. It is a turning. It is also a change of the mind. So to, to turn to Jesus means that I change my mind about who I think that he is. Remember what he said? You killed the author of what? Life. You killed the Holy One. You didn't care. Even Pilate wanted to let Jesus go, but you're like, crucify him. You thought Jesus was ordinary to repent and say, no, he was not just a man. He was God's own son. You, you chose to see him as just like a miracle worker, but he obviously had something wrong because God let him die on a cross. And even the Bible says anyone who dies on a tree has God's curse, but they didn't get it. And so the good news is the reminder that there is life when we turn to him. Now, what does he say when we repent? What happens? Look at verse 19. Don't miss this. Repent then and turn to God so that, and here's the result, your sins may be wiped out. The word could be translated blotted out, obliterated. You could put in here if you wanted, erased. So repentance, the turning of my mind and, and believing who Jesus really is, leads to a wipe out of my past. That times of refreshing may come for the Lord. Peter uses a vivid picture that doesn't make sense to us because we don't write anymore. I've forgotten how to write. I don't know about you. I just type. I thumb. You know, I text. I don't write a lot. But in the first century, they, they used 
um, papyrus, which was super expensive. And in order to use that piece of expensive paper, you would use ink that didn't have acid on this. This is a little rabbit trail, but it might be helpful. Ink did not have acid. So if I wrote something, if I wrote a letter to you, and then I'm done with it, if I wanted to reuse it to save money because it was expensive, all I had to do was to wet something. And because there's no acid in the ink, it doesn't get in to the papyrus. It sits on top. So it's like a dry erase board. Have you ever seen a dry erase board? But it doesn't leave a little mark on a dry erase board. You've got to really like scrub it. But imagine a dry erase board that you really dampen and it had all this stuff and then you wipe it and wash it. It's exactly what he's talking about in relation to my sin. You see, when I turn and I, I, I see Jesus for who he is, God obliterates, wipes out, erases my past. And my friends, that's the good news. When we choose to follow him today, he erases my past. And then it says that times of refreshing may come. Now, what's that all about? The word here means to experience relief from trouble. I love this translation. You could put it this way, that there will be breathing space, relaxation. When your dry erase board, when your sin list, when your past has been wiped out, what does it do? It sets you free. No matter what has happened to you, no matter what you've done, what God has done in Jesus, when I turn to him and I realize the gospel's not just for the past, my forefathers, mom and dad, it's for me. And when I approach God humbly and say, God, I'm the one who, if I was there, I would have sent you to the cross. I didn't see who you were. I didn't see that you came to give your life for me. But now when I see Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for doing this for me, he blots, he wipes away my past and he sets me up for a season of refreshing. You get breathing room with God. You can actually know him. You can live a different way. The good news is that today when I make the decision to go the Jesus way, my past does not dictate my future. My choices, my habits, my ruts do not dictate my future. Jesus has wiped that. And now I'm free. I've got breathing room. I can relax and enjoy God and now go his direction. Now for most of us, you're like, okay, this is great, but I've already done that. I'm already in. Let me tell you, my friend, this good news is not just for those who have not responded to Jesus. It's for those who have responded to Jesus. Look who Peter's talking to. Peter's talking to people who know the Bible. Peter's talking to people who know the book. And those of us who know the story of Jesus, it should never get old. I hope I never get past this point where I just thank God for what he's done for me in Jesus, where I'm thankful for his renewal and I'm thankful for his life. The third thing, and we're almost done. The gospel is a story and the reminder of God's pursuit in my past. The good news is, is the reminder of life in him today. And finally, the gospel is God's word of hope for our Future. God's word of hope for our future. Look at with me with uh, verse 20 and 21. That he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And then he looks ahead. He says, heaven must receive him. Where is Jesus when Peter is speaking? Jesus had ascended to the Father. Jesus is not standing there on earth. Jesus went up and he's back with 
the Father until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. The core of the gospel is that, yes, it speaks to my past. It speaks to my today, but it speaks to the future. And so Peter says to these people, now in the first century, every Jew believed that if you follow God at the end of time, everyone's going to die. But at the end of time, when God renews all things, those who were in God will rise up. And somehow in God's recreated world, we will be with God. Every Jew had that hope. And what does Peter do? Because he's speaking to Jews. He's like, your hope of resurrection in the future, your hope that one day you're going to be right with God, it's not by being a good Jew. It's by following Jesus. Jesus is the one who is already raised. He was the firstborn from among the dead, Paul says later. He's the one who experienced resurrection now. And so when you think about what the future is going to be look, like, look like, just look at Jesus. Jesus was risen in God's power. Jesus is alive. Jesus is doing these miracles. Jesus has power. Jesus is with the Father. And so when the Father makes all things new, he's going to take all of us who are now in Jesus, and we're going to rule with him. Jesus is not just some guy out of nowhere. He's telling Jews, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God had been doing since Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Samuel, David, all the prophets, everyone's pointing ahead to Jesus. And so even though the lingo is different, for us, my friend, the message ends with a radical word of hope. You know, I don't know what this life has for you. Following Jesus does not mean that we live a pain-free life. Why do I say that? Because what we're going to read in Acts 4, starting next Sunday, is when things go south. Peter and John share this great news. Many more people are going to believe. They experience the miracle of this crippled man being made whole. But because they follow Jesus, they're going to end up in prison. <laughs> How's that for a chipper end? But Peter, he says it with confidence. He's got hope because he knows that heaven is the place where Jesus now dwells, but Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. And when you and I receive the gospel, not only is our past blotted out, not only does he give us the Holy Spirit, we saw it in Acts 2. Those who follow Jesus receive the Spirit, and there's a life for today so that the Holy Spirit can show me places where I need to repent. The Holy Spirit can remind me of areas where I'm out of line with Jesus. The Holy Spirit can give me the power to resist temptation and to do what's right in the sight of God. We get life today in the gospel, but the gospel also speaks to future hope. No matter what this world brings, pain, suffering, is your life going to be long? I hope mine is long. I want to hit triple digits. Personally, I'm going for 100 plus. No, no lie. I, I want to see triple digits. I want to live a long life. I want to see my great grandkids following Jesus. Is Jesus going to provide that for me? I have no idea. I have no idea. Am I going to make it another week? I hope so. But I have no reason to fear. I have no reason to be depressed. I have no reason to hang my head low. I know the author of life. So do you. If you know Jesus, you have everything you need because what you need is wrapped up in a person. And it's God himself. And out of that contact, that relationship with Jesus, future hope is yours right now. 
And Jesus said, I, I'm not going to leave you comfortless, John 16, but I'm going to send you my spirit. I'm not going to leave you alone like an orphan. I'm going to be with you. The Holy Spirit's going to come and remind you of everything that I've taught you. Jesus is here by his Holy Spirit who now lives in us. And my friends, that's hope now. That's hope tomorrow. That's hope for the future. And I hope that tonight you see the multiple dimensions of the gospel. 3D. It covers my past. It takes care of today. And it gives me hope for the future. And friends, because those of us who are following Jesus believe this, this leads me to repentance. Why? Wait a minute. I, I thought repentance is for people who don't believe in Jesus. No. Repentance is for those who don't and those who do. Because how many of you would be willing to be honest enough and say, just because I'm following Jesus doesn't mean my life reflects it. Right? There are areas where I am out of sync with the heart of God. And so the message tonight is in light of the gospel, in light of my present day hope, future hope, I ought to repent. I ought to turn to God and say, God, see if there's any way that's just out of line in me. And I want to turn towards you. God, give me the strength to follow you. God, I want to do what's right in your sight. God, I want you. Well, this evening, we're going to respond because what happens in the story as we read into Acts 4 next Sunday is something beautiful and challenging happens. The people of God go through tough times, but even in the tough times, God is going to still do some more amazing stuff. And we'll get to that next week, but for tonight, uh, in what area are you falling short of the gospel? Have, have you asked God to take care of your past? Are you here tonight? Have you actually repented of sin and put your trust in Jesus to rescue you? If not, why not now? Why not here? Why not right in this gathering? Peter and John speak to the crowd. And tonight, I don't, I don't know you, most of you. I don't know where you're at. But tonight, hear this. Jesus, who rescued them 2,000 years ago, wants to rescue you. But maybe you're here and you're like, I'm, I'm already following Jesus. Okay, in what areas? Not if. In what areas do you and I need to turn? Turn to Jesus Give him that issue, give him that struggle, confess that sin, whatever the case may be. Maybe you're just struggling with hope. You don't know if, if you're going to make it. You don't know if you're going to have enough, be enough, do enough. I'm here to remind you that in Jesus there is hope. 